ball pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner. Conine towards the wall. Leaping and he got it. What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings in the first pitch. High fly ball left field. Deep. It's up. Outside the box with Jeff Conine. As always, he's Jeff Conine. I'm Aram Layton. And uh, some small things have happened since the last time we recorded. Of course, the World Series went down and, and the Astros won. And then uh, some guys have signed in free agency, whatever. And then, But you also have a little life update yourself. Uh, you just joined the Marlins organization again. You're brought back on as the special assistant to the owner, which is really awesome. Bruce Sherman brings you back. Uh, congratulations. This is awesome. Very excited to talk about it. Uh, but yeah, how do you feel right now, Niner? Yeah, no, it's uh, thank you for one. Thanks for the congratulations. And, uh, you know, it's like I've come back home. You know, um, I worked for this organization for nine years after I retired. I uh, pl- played here for eight years, uh, worked for nine and, and, it was just always odd to me that I wasn't working for this team, you know? Um, So when the new regime came in, they made some changes um, and basically got rid of all the special assistants, myself, um, Andre Dawson, Tony Perez, Jack McKeon, and started fresh. Um, But now, you know, Bruce Sherman started these conversations earlier in the year and uh, we kept in touch and he said, you know what, you know, there's going to be some kind of a reorganization, um, uh, positions in the, well, everywhere, front office, minor league yeah. staff, everything. So he said, let's wait until uh, after the season's over and we'll, and we'll revisit. So he called me the day after the season was over and, uh, got the ball rolling. And I met with him, uh, last week and, you know, I had some great conversations, um, and I'm excited to get started and help this organization get back to uh, the postseason. I mean, it goes without being said that that Mr. Marlin belongs with the Marlins organization. And, you know, we don't have to get into, you know, all of the details of the way things went in the past, but it, most importantly, you're back involved now. But the the interesting part about it for me is, you know, we, we see now this team and you talk about the new regime and it, there was a new regime and technically this, this is still the same owner in Bruce Sherman, but we're seeing a lot of, of turnover now through top to bottom of the organization, right? Kim Ang was brought in a little bit later and, and now she's making her moves too, as well to from, from everywhere, whether it's scouting, whether it's other areas in the front office, we're seeing a lot of new faces in this organization, new faces for you, but also new faces for people that have been there since you, you know, parted ways with the Marlins in the past. So there's a lot of, of turnover right now. And what's nice is that you are somebody that's been around the org, like you said, for the eight years that you played the nine years afterwards. And, you know, that's something that you bring here is not only an understanding of the Marlins franchise history, not only the area, the fans, everything that goes into this franchise in South Florida, but you also know what it's like to win as a Marlin. And there's been two teams that have done it. You are one of two guys that were on both of them, but Louis Castillo, I don't think was on the world series roster in 97, but the only guy that even sniffs that, that ballpark as you, what do you want to bring this organization? Because, you know, I, I know you have so much wisdom. We, we've 
could just listen to any episode of this podcast and people could see what you can bring just from a baseball knowledge standpoint. But you know, this is a very vague job description. And I think for good reason, because you bring so many different things to the table, right? You could go down to the field and talk hitting with, with one of the Marlins hitters, but you can also sit down with, with Kim Ang and talk about, you know, whatever big decisions that have to be made. And those are things that you did in the past as well. You did a little bit of everything. What are you hoping to bring this Marlins organization and a pivotal part of, of this team's history right now as they're trying to, you know, get, get some momentum going under this new ownership. Yeah. Um, you know, like you said, I'm kind of a multifaceted role, you know, I can help on the business side, um, with, uh, sponsorship acquisition. I can talk to season ticket holders, uh, community events, um, on that stuff. Uh, I think I bring a lot to the table and then on the other side, the baseball side, you know, I'd love to be involved uh, in, you know, development, uh, baseball development, maybe go down to the minor leagues and and uh, make some stops at the affiliates to, and see our prospects that are that are uh, developing down there and, and help them out in any way I can uh, at the big league level. Just be there for, um, you know, Kim and her staff, uh, Skip Schumacher and his new staff, you know, wherever I can lend a bit of uh, help or expertise, I'm willing to do that. And, you know, I want to make painfully clear to everybody that I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes. I'm here to help. I'm here to get this team back to respectability to back into the win column and um, have winning seasons, you know, and I think you got the, the groundwork for something that can be done because when we talk about the hallmark of great teams, it's about pitching and defense, right? And uh, Marlins have one of the best young pitching staffs in all of baseball. So that foundation has been laid. Uh, like you said, Kim Ng is now in charge. She's in charge solely by herself, and she's able to take her knowledge and use her staff and kind of create her vision of what she wants this team to be. So I'm um, excited to be involved in any way I can, um, you know, to help Bruce out to navigate this market, like you said, uh, the fans, uh, my knowledge of this market. Um, and, you know, I think it's going to be a, a beneficial relationship both ways. I'll, I'll be able to learn a lot from him as well. So you talk about the fans in the market, and this is something we've talked about dating all the way back to Wayne Heisinger, right? This this is this is a very unique market in Miami, not just for baseball, for for any sport, and and baseball especially because this team has had so many you know, ups and downs, and and there's not really very many other franchises where you can look at the lows that the Marlins have had, and also the highs that the Marlins have had. There's teams that have been around three times as long with not as many World Series titles, but there's also a lot of teams that have not gone this long without a season over 500 if we're eliminating 2020. So there's been turbulent times over the last, you know, since 93 to, to say the least, but we've seen spurts where the fans show up and you've talked about that in, in 97 and in 03. Uh, and there's been larger spurts where the fans don't show up. And there's reason to understand the fans perspective there, as we've seen, you know, teams dismantled on multiple occasions. We've, we've seen a struggle to sustain competitiveness and, and show to fans that you're, you're going to invest in long-term winning, but also this is a very, diverse area of a lot of people that didn't grow up of generational fandom, which is a big thing that keeps that loyal fan base. And that's why you really got to win or do some other things to, to bring fans in. Is it just win or bust to get fans in the stadium? And if not, what else can the Marlins do? Of course, the priority is winning, but what else do you think the Marlins can do? You talk about relationships, community, all those things. That was something that Derek Jeter seemed to prioritize in the past, but it just didn't seem to translate. 
what can this team do to in this franchise do to, to get more fans involved aside from winning? Well, you know, like you said, it's a unique market. <clears throat> You've got allegiances from uh, everybody in the Northeast that have moved down here. Um, you're not a, a St. Louis that people grew up in, and are born and raised in St. Louis and they are St. Louis Cardinals fans. That's what they do here. The, you don't talk to a whole lot of people that are born and raised in South Florida. It's usually, yeah, my parents moved down from New York or they moved down from Philly or they moved down from, uh, you know, Boston, you know, these are all the, the people that we get in the melting pot of South Florida. So, uh, and that's a challenge. That's a challenge. So winning, I think is first and foremost for this organization to be able to put bodies in seats. Um, and then, you know, there's so many other community outreach programs that they're starting to do that I'm just learning about now. I haven't heard of all of them yet, but um, I'll learn as we go along. But there's got to be things that we can do to to engage the South Florida community to get them get them out to the ballpark. And, you know, it's, it's doable, obviously, because you watch the World Baseball Classic and the crazy fans, uh, the excitement that is drawn up when that uh, event takes place. And it's Coming up in, in March this year, yeah. they've got, I think, 12 games going on uh, at uh, Lone Depot Park. So I'll be there. Gonna be, uh, it's going to be super exciting. And I'd never I've never personally been to one of those games. Really? But when you get into, uh, you know, Dominican versus Venezuela, they put 35,000 in that place and it is loud and exciting. And that's what we want to get, you know, obviously regular season for the Marlins. And I, I know I'm sure a lot of people make make the trip from, you know, the Dominican Republic themselves, but I would say that the vast majority, at least a large portion of them are, are locals that, that want to come out and, and support, right? There, there is a hunger for just quality baseball that I think, you know, that was something that we've heard brought up in the past. And I think this is going to be a great reminder of, of how much passion there is for the sport of baseball, especially in this community, if, if you can do it right. Uh, and, and if you can, convince people that it's worth their hard-earned money to go to the ballpark and and sit down and watch. I think, you know, cost of of games doesn't help uh, and, and it's got to be justifiable for for people to pay that. I, I can't believe you haven't been to the World Baseball Classic. I, my, my dad took me back at the old ballpark and it was one of my my favorite things that that I was able to go to is my dog's bark in the background. I know you know that, Joe, with your, <laughs> with your pups. Um, but it is one of the coolest things, I think, that the Baseball puts on and and it's one of the more unique events. We have the World Cup going on right now. Nothing compares to that, obviously. But in your experience, it, what do you think of the World Baseball Classic? You haven't been in person, but just in terms of the turnout that we're seeing, a lot of players that are you know verbally committing to, to playing for their countries that are extremely, extremely loaded, loaded rosters across the board. Uh, you know, what do you think this means for baseball in terms of expanding the sport? And how can Major League Baseball kind of lean into that a little bit, too? Well, there's nothing like uh, national pride uh, in any sport. You know, when you look at the World Cup that's going on right now, um, it's a frenzy when you look at the Olympics, how much people get engaged because it's all about your country and representing your country. So uh, when you watch the World Baseball Classic and you get this nationalism going with these teams, it creates an environment and an excitement that is uh, you, you can't match. You can't duplicate and it's You can't really duplicate it. Anyway. You got 162 games during a regular season. This is a very limited tournament. Um, so to get that kind of enthusiasm uh, in the regular season is you, you can't do that. But um, I love it. Uh, I'd love the fact that, you know, MLB and and I kind of got a taste of this a little bit, how they're trying to expand internationally. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I worked with some kids uh, in October out in Arizona yeah. for we had 11 different countries represented and and some really good baseball. So MLB is trying to do that. They're trying to create that, um, you know, that reach out into Europe, especially to get uh, these countries more engaged and and put out a quality baseball product. And they're, they're having really good success with that. It, it's funny because we see the NFL doing it. You know, NFL is a different beast, but they just had a game in Germany, huge success. They just had a game in Mexico, huge success. And uh, I think baseball can can have that similar effect in, in some ways, you know, maybe not to that level of success. But like you said, being able to usher in a lot more fans all over the globe. And I think the World Baseball Classic is, is going to be a great way to, to do that. I want to go back to the player development thing that you mentioned real quick, because this is something that Every franchise is trying to get better at, and oh, even if you're the Dodgers, you're always looking at a way to get better at player development, right? With the Dodgers, they have more resources they can invest, but you got teams like the Rays, like the Cleveland Guardians, and, and others who are, you know, more in the Marlins tax bracket, I could say, uh, that mm-hmm. have figured out how to be efficient with the player development side of things. And I know the Marlins are are very much looking to overhaul that department top to bottom. And like you said, you're hoping to get involved in that in some way, whether it's just going out there, boots on the ground or helping oversee that process. Right. What do you think? And maybe this is something that you got to get out there a little bit more and, and take it in. But you've been there, given that you go travel and see your son play through the years and have seen him climb the ladder through the minor leagues. What, what do you think is something that, you know, the Marlins and, and other franchises alike, it's not Marlins exclusive here, uh, could continue to get better at with with the player development side of things? And, and what's something that you think could maybe help take this franchise and, and others in that area to, to, to the next level when it comes to building sustainable talent and, and really being able to develop your players to the maximum of their abilities? Yeah, you know, you look at organizations like Tampa Bay, you look at organizations like the Guardians, you look at organizations like... St. Louis Cardinals and and try to figure out why do these teams win year after year? Um, like you said, Tampa, Cleveland, fiscally challenged compared to a market like St. Louis or the Dodgers or the Yankees, where you can um, you can buy your development. You know, uh, where these teams they have to de- develop their players. So I don't know. I've always admired the the Cardinal organization and and to have Skip Schumacher come over from that organization, have that kind of pedigree, I think is going to really help. But for me, I think it's just having a blueprint, um, uh, uh, organizational philosophy that everybody is on board with and everybody buys into and everybody follows to a T. So when every player comes into your organization, they know exactly where they stand. They know exactly what's expected of them. They know exactly how to play the game of baseball. And uh, if they don't, and this is what I've witnessed with the Cardinals, especially if you don't fit into that plan, they get rid of you and they get somebody else that will come in and do it. Um, because to be a team player in that plan, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm very much into the clubhouse and how you fit into the team dynamic. And uh, I think that's a big part of it. And if you don't fit into that team dynamic and that blueprint that the organization has come up with and, and uh, what they feel is the best way to develop their players, They'll get rid of you and get somebody else. Um, you know, those are tough to tough to decisions sometimes because you might be getting rid of a player that has a high upside, but uh, the disruption that that player might bring to the system and to your clubhouse, uh, I would take that trade off and get somebody else in there that fit in better. And and that's been something that that's come up in the past, right? When when you had that that role with the Marlins previously, and you know, kind of just being able to to vet out sometimes 
free agents and and just kind of see w- what you think, whether you think people are a good fit for the team and the organization and things like that. And we talk about Dave Dombrowski as somebody who seems to really do a good job of that. And uh, it seems like some teams buy into that. Some teams don't. But we talked about that a, a couple episodes ago, uh, that how important it is to, to really be able to understand the player as a human and, and how they fit in. And how do you do that though? Because we talked about Dombrowski. He used to roam around a little bit, but he didn't want to be too involved. It's a very delicate line to toe because you don't want to get you know too intimately close with the players because at the end of the day, it's a business, but also you want to understand kind of the dynamics of the clubhouse. Is that something that maybe the people around the GM, uh, the, the special assistants and things like that do, do a little bit more of to, to take that off of the general manager? You know, How do some of these other organizations seem to have such a good pulse on, you know, the vibe of their clubhouse and what's going on in there. Well, I think it's just a trust factor. You got your coaching staff, you got your manager and your coaches that can speak uh, to the front office openly and, and transparently about what they feel their needs are in the clubhouse. And um, you know, you might say something about a player that says, you know, we need a change here, yeah. but the front office might say, and the analytics guys might say, no, look at this guy's doing uh, on paper. He's really contributing to this team and his stats are great. But then you've got the other side where these guys live in the clubhouse and they see what kind of a disruption a certain player might be and say, no, we got to make a change. So it's, it's a trust factor, I think. And uh, you know, having a good rapport with your, your GM, her staff in this case and uh, the new manager. Yeah. So who have you had the chance to speak to? I know it's very early. You, you got to go to a Marlins event where you're delivering meals, right? Is, is that what that was? Yeah, I was at the ballpark and, uh, you know, the underprivileged uh, families down in, in Miami just could basically uh, get a gift certificate for a Thanksgiving meal. So awesome. there was like a there's like a drive through service right through the one of the parking garages. And we open up the trunk and and put their stuff in, in the trunk. And there was also a walk up. And I think there's over a thousand a thousand families that showed up. So um, it was, you know, it, it's great that uh, we can help out. But it's also you realize how many people are in need. Uh, especially around the holidays. And it was, it was nice to be able to put a smile on some people's faces for a day. And how nice was it to be involved doing that with the Marlins again too, right? Now you have your own, your own, you do so many things that so many things for the community, whether it's Conan's clubhouse, whether it's whatever else you do. I mean, you're always so involved, but there's something about being involved with, with charity, with that, with that Marlins across your chest and being able to help the Marlins and their efforts as well. It seemed like that was the perfect thing for you to, to be reintroduced to the franchise. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I've been part of these uh, events before and, and the uh, Thanksgiving distributions, but uh, to step right back in and, and put on the new colors of the Marlins and, and hand out, you know, uh, meals to, to families that are in need is, yeah, it not only makes you feel good, but it's a, a great, like you said, uh, indoctrination back into the organization. And you talk about the the process of getting back involved. What, when did you feel like this could really happen for you? Um, you know, I always felt that it was a possibility from uh, the first conversation Bruce and I had. Um, we had some great, you know, uh, conversations. And I don't know, I was just hopeful that that this is this is where I belong. And, uh, I felt that I, I still add a lot to the organization and Bruce felt that too. So, um, you know, I couldn't be happier. Couldn't be happier. 
So now we move forward here as we get closer to the season. And, you know, this is a really pivotal offseason for the Marlins in, in a lot of ways. You talk about the the groundwork laid for the pitching and, you know, there seems like going to look to add some bats and, and add players here and there. There were some surprising non-tenders, longtime Marlon Brian Anderson headed out. So we're seeing a lot of of new faces potentially involved. They trade Eliezer Hernandez. There's a lot of of turnover and things like that. So we're going to see new faces. And and you've talked about in the past when you were part of the Marlins in 97, it was a lot, or 93, excuse me, where you called it like name tag spring training, basically, where it was so many new faces coming together here. Uh, sometimes you, you got to have a little bit of that just reset button. It's not a total reset because you got a lot of familiar faces still, but there's going to be, you know, some of those guys that have been there. I think Brian Anderson was the longest tenured Marlin, if I'm not mistaken. And it's, it's, it's a big change. If not, then it's Miggy Rowe. Um, how do you balance the the core of, you know, the guys that have been there for a little bit, but also that, that tangible, uh, shuffle that you can see the team ready, ready to make here in your experience. Have you been that new guy joining a team with you know, still that core of guys that let's be honest, hasn't succeeded in their own respective rights. Maybe have succeeded. That's why they're still on the team, but as a group haven't, and you're brought in to kind of make a difference here and, and help write the ship. You talk about not stepping on toes as a player. That's a unique spot to be in. Whoever gets brought in is going to be in that spot. You know, how do you how do you maneuver that as a player? And, and what is that dynamic like? Well, it's tough. You know, and uh, I was with the Marlins for five years after the 97 World Series. They kind of blew up that team and I had to go. I had to. I went back to the Kansas City Royals. So I'm stepping back into a familiar organization because they drafted me and signed me. And I played there the first uh, five years of my of my baseball career. But I hadn't been there in five years. So I'm going into a totally new situation. And, uh, you know, it, it's tough because you got to learn that clubhouse dynamic like you, you, I, I like to talk about. And what are these guys going to be like when you walk into that clubhouse and uh, what you have to learn 25 personalities, you know, right away and see how you fit in and, and who you're going to hang with. And then, you know, you got your family dynamic on top of that. You know, where are we going to live and, and how are the kids going to get along with the other kids and how's my wife going to get along with the other wives? It's like it's a huge uh, change for a family. And I had to do it, you know, a number of times. So, um, you know, I went back to the, uh, when I went to the Orioles for the first time, I was thrust in there with three days to go before the opening day. I didn't get a spring training under my belt. So, uh, that was kind of crazy. Um, and then coming back to the Marlins in, in 2003, I didn't know anybody on the team really. So, uh, I was put into the thick of a playoff race right away, <clears throat> obviously. And, and, you just navigate that the best you can as a baseball player. You you know, you know how to do things on the field and you know your personality and you hope it just gels with everybody else's. So we're going to talk about like free agency to wrap up and, and just players perspective on that as we get ready for a very exciting free agency from the blue chip players like Aaron judge, who was just seen in San Francisco, which of course, you know, Yankees fans are going to be very reasonable about seeing Aaron judge in San Francisco uh, to, you know, the shortstop class that is extremely talented, but even, you know, some of the more underrated free agents and everything in between kind of what goes into that decision-making process. But I want to wrap up with one more specific Marlins question. And this might not be one that you can give a, a, a proper answer to until mm -hmm. you know, maybe you're a little bit more entrenched, but you know, we talk about short-term, long-term goals. Obviously, the goal, like you said, is to get back to the playoffs and and, and to build a sustainable winner here. But you, you got to go one step at a time. And and 
to be blunt, this past season was a disaster in a lot of ways. Uh, admittedly, a lot of injuries, a lot of unfortunate things happened. And, you know, it just went very poorly for them. They were coming off of a 2020 playoff season, that shortened season, but they were very excited about that. Now, back to back losing seasons, you're not going to make it all back in one year, but the hope is to, to try to make that step in the right direction. What do you think is a a positive year for the Marlins next year? Of course, I'd love to say playoffs, but w- what does it take for next year to be a success and a sign of the team and the franchise heading in the right direction? It could be off the field. It could be more on the you know community outreach side. It could be more on, on the team side. Again, this is really kind of the first time we're going to get to see Kim Ang make the decisions and and be able to build around and build this franchise. It's unfortunate that we had this couple year detour before being able to kind of head in this direction again, but what would it take for next year to be a success for the Marlins in your eyes? I mean, you got to put together a winning season. You know, you got to be above 500. That's uh, such a positive thing for a team, for an organization to build off of. And, you know, like you said, I didn't follow the Marlins that closely up until now. So I'm looking at the roster the other day and Miggy Rojas, uh, led the team with 140 games played. The next highest games played tally on the Marlins is 118. So how do you expect to win when you only have two players? I think one other player has played 100 games. you got three players that play more than 100 games. It's impossible to have a winning season when you can't keep your personnel on the field. So um, health is a big thing, always. Uh, pitching staff as well. You know, you look at how great the pitching staff is and how well and, and young and talented they are. But Sandy Alcantara was obviously <laughs> – unanimous Cy Young winner, but it yeah. dropped off precipitously after that because he made 32 or 33 starts. Um, I think Lopez made 29 or, and then after that, the next highest was 18 starts. So they couldn't even keep the pitching staff together uh, for a prolonged period of time. That um, I think that's first and foremost, keep your players on the field, you know, be able to keep them on the field and, and see what you got, because I don't think the Marlins even know what they have right now because they haven't played enough. It's funny because, you know, one of their, their best acquisitions I thought over the last couple of years was, was Joey Wendell, just a, just a ball player, puts the ball in play, plays every position at a high level, plays hard, uh, does all the little things. And he was off to a phenomenal start, pulls his hamstring. Jazz Chisholm was looking like a superstar to start this season, an easy all-star. I mean, he led the Marlins in every offensive statistic up until the end of the year, even though he only played up until like June, right? Like because of how dominant he was and also how deficient they were in other areas. Uh, Jorge Soler, you know, their big free agent signing was hurt most of the year as well and and didn't get to really do much for them either. So, and and of course, Brian Anderson, who's no longer with the team, but he was banged up all year uh, for the most part as well and has put together some solid seasons. So is that something that's, you know, a little bit of bad luck? Is that a little bit of, you know, maybe organizational philosophy on on training and things like that, that you might see shaken up a little bit? Is it a little of both? You know, what's your perspective on this? Because again, I, I think last year was was a rough season, but it could have been far better. I'm not saying they would have made the playoffs. I'm not, I don't know what would have happened. Nobody knows, like you said, but it would have been far better if all of their guys were healthy. And I think that's fairly obvious. Yeah, I mean, it, it's really... Uh, mind-boggling to be able to put a specific reason why your team played so few games. Uh, I would never blame a training staff. Um, you know, you, you talk about players themselves and the way they prepare and the way they train. Uh, I think it's more about the individual than it is the organization's uh, fault as far as pulling hamstrings. And you got to keep yourself in shape, man. You're a professional athlete this and this is your job. This isn't D1 college where... This, you, is, this is not, you know, uh, a thing anymore where... Um, you can afford to miss time. So 
uh, I always was held accountable for myself on the field yeah. to be on the field. That was all me. Um, I never blamed trainers for not training me properly or the, the weight, uh, you know, the weight room staff, uh, for not giving me the proper exercises. I knew at that point how to train my body and I was a professional and I knew how to stay on the field. So I love, um, I love that you said that because it, it, that's an important point. We always see the, the, the training staff like scapegoated it, for, for grown men, professional baseball players of how many years not staying healthy. Um, they can't babysit all of them. They, they, they cannot just be there, you know, overlooking everybody at all times. And again, it's not a division one college program where you need to, to babysit these, these players and, and make sure they're right. So you think it was more of just an individual to individual basis. And then a little bit of just bad luck, most likely is what you could probably chalk that up to. Yeah. I mean, injuries are going to happen obviously, but you know, when you get so many on one team all together, that's, that's a bad coincidence to happen. You don't want yeah. it to happen again, but um, yeah, I a hundred percent, you know, these guys have every resource available to them 24 yeah. seven. Uh, they've got the best trainers. They got the best weight rooms. They got the best advice as far as, uh, um, training regimens. You know, there's no excuse for uh, a major league player to be out of shape for one and, um, to be perennially hurt. I think yeah. you can figure out a way to keep your body in shape and, and know how to play within your limits. Absolutely. And so we'll wrap up with with free agency, because this is always a fascinating topic for me. We always love to see people, you know, predict who's going to go where and how much and this and that. And, uh, you know, as, as someone who played for as long as you did, who saw as many players go from team to team, played for as many teams with notable players that were brought in as free agent signings or, you know, left as free agent signings elsewhere, whatever it is, it's different case by case, right? Every player, every human being has different preferences, but what, what do you think are the, generally speaking, if you took a census of the whole league, what are the biggest factors that go into a free agency decision? Um, and, you know, when we're looking at some of these players, how much does, and again, it's different case by case, but you look at like an Aaron judge, of course he's doing his due diligence, but, but how much does that first team, that team that drafted you, that team that developed you or that you came up with at the big league level, like how much does that, you know, tug on your heartstrings and, and, and make you want to stay there or, or how much is it family? How much, like what really goes into the free agency rationale for a big league player? You just mentioned all those factors, uh, you know, did the organization you kind of grew up with draft you, developed you, come through the big leagues? Are they in the in the hunt? Are they making an offer? Um, then you got where you grew up. You know, is there a free agent team in the area that you grew up? And that's a that's a popular like, thing for people like to Freddie, always highlight. Like Freddie Freeman, Freddie yeah. Freeman wanted to go back out to California, he grew up in Southern California, wanted to go back out there. That's a huge pull. Um, money is a huge pull for some people. I mean, they're going for top dollar. It doesn't matter where it is. Uh, it could be the worst city that they've ever played in before. Um, but if they give them top dollar, they are, it's going to be an, an enticing thing to go there. And then uh, you got guys that want to go win. They want to, they'll take a discount and not go for the big money or the yeah. biggest money because they want to be an organization that's going to win and win the fastest because, you know, free agencies, for five-year type contracts, you've got a handful of guys. There are very few players that are going to get five-year contracts. You're talking superstars, the best of the best. And these are the kind of guys that, um, you know, hopefully in this stage in their career is they want to win. If they haven't yet, they want to go someplace they're going to win. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, uh, Jim Tomei, um, 
took a discount because he didn't, uh, where was he supposed to go? Um, I remember his free agent signing that he took less money to stay somewhere. It might've been with the Phillies. I'm not exactly sure what the deal was, but he took less money because he was comfortable where he was. His family was there. They had, they had grown roots and he was happy and he liked the organization. He thought they had a chance to win. So he took less money to stay there. And, it seems like that's you know, something that comes later, right? That comes one, once you're a vet, usually in, in the game for a little yeah. while. Then you have that perspective a bit more. Yeah. If you're not married, you got a young family and you know, you you want that security for one. And um, sometimes you're going to go for the big, huge money for the first, first time. But when you uh, are in the league a long time and you haven't had that taste of being in the postseason, I think a lot of guys chase a ring later on. And, and how important like was that that taste of the postseason when you got it in 97? How bad did you want it again? Right. How like it, it, it's it's almost one of those things where if you don't know, maybe you don't know or maybe you're even more desperate for it because you want to know so badly. Or was it, you know, you got the taste, you were hooked and you're like, I got to get back there. Did you feel like you were hungrier pre 97 or post 97 to get to oh, get post, back to post 97 for sure really yeah. okay so oh, you yeah. got a taste and you're like i need this again because we weren't even close the first four years and all of a sudden you're in it and you're playing meaning, meaningful games in september uh which i only did twice in my career really well three or four times when you give it you oh, four and oh five, we had good teams um yeah and with the mets um but you're you're always chasing that electricity and that that energy that the playoffs present because oh. You know, you put this uniform on for a reason, I think, and that's to get to the World Series and win a championship. And, yeah. you know, if you're not in it for that, then you're in it for the wrong reason, I think. Last question uh, in regards to free agency, and then we'll wrap up with one last Mar or with the jersey, of course, and then one last Marlins question. So Cody Bellinger is a popular topic right now. Um, we, we, we know not long ago was the MVP you know, phenomenal season. And it's been a struggle for him since then. In previous episodes, we've talked about, you know, what you see with him in the box and all those things. And I mean, it goes without being said, this guy's super talented and also was one of the worst hitters in baseball over the last two years. He's a popular target because he's still an elite defensive center fielder. And, you know, he he's, not a detriment to the clubhouse. He seems to play hard. Like it's not for a lack of effort. So a lot of teams are, are very interested in bringing this guy back. His agent, Scott Boris said, you know, Hey, we only want to get a one year deal here, here because he wants to bet on himself and hit the open market. If you're somebody like Cody Ballinger, who went from MVP to non-tendered, which has never happened in the history of the sport, as long, as far as I know, what would you be looking for? And I'm not asking you to speak for Cody Bellinger. I'm just asking you to put yourself in his shoes, I guess. Are you looking to to go to a team where it's kind of lower stakes for once? It's a one year deal, like where you can just work through things and and try to get right. Or are you trying to play for a competitive team and hope it elevates your game a little bit? We're talking about an MVP candidate who is now lost at the plate. Where would you be at mentally? You were consistent your whole career. Uh, so it, it's probably hard to like put yourself in that mindset. But as someone who can probably relate better than anybody else with a microphone right now, how would you, you know, how would you approach that? Listen, we all struggle. You know, we've all struggled in our baseball careers and some sometimes to a point where you're like, you never think you're going to get it back again. So I think probably that's where Cody Bellinger's at in his head is, and he's got a very unique swing, right? He's, totally stands straight up tall and, and swings so hard at the ball. And you see him, he's still kind of doing that. So um, some people have the thought process is that I was an MVP swinging like I swing. 
So I'm going to stick with what I know and I'm going to, it's going to come back to me eventually. And that's what I'm going to stick with. Whereas other people, they struggle for that long. You're like, geez, this is not working anymore for me. I need to reinvent and totally retool my swing and do something totally different. I don't know where Cody Bellinger's at at this point, but I would think as a guy going to a free agent year uh, with a one-year deal, I want to be in the thick of things. I want, I want to be competitive. I want to challenge myself. I want to be, um, like you said, get back with a competitive team and back to where he belongs or where he thinks he belongs in the echelon of center fielders, which was, he was number one there for a while. So I would want to be in a competitive team in a competitive situation playing for a playoff spot. And that just elevates my game Mm -hmm. and elevates me for another year. If it's only a one year deal, if I'm successful in that situation, boom, I hit the free agent market with a lot of suitors uh, coming up the following year. And that's a, that's a really good, like just perspective there because, you know, some people would say, oh, it's added pressure or it's this or that. I, I don't know if he's ever going to feel more pressure than he's felt over the last two years playing for the best team in baseball in the regular season and just continuously being that that hole in their lineup. I think wherever else he goes now it can only be a bit bit more relaxing compared to what he's been through, you know, trying to play so that he doesn't get non-tendered, trying to you know not have any of those issues. So last thing is the jersey. And then we'll wrap up with one last Marlins question. What? do we got here? We got pinstripes could be Rockies. They look a little purple. Is it black pinstripes? Yeah. What team we got here? looks black. It's black. Okay. It's Astros. Yes. Houston Astros. Well, they won the World Series. I figured they won the World Series. Let's there's themes here. Themes. Um, Hall of Famer. I'd assume. No, nope. So it's not Craig Biggio then. Um, Lance Berkman. Wow. Did I get it? Let's go. Wow. Talk about a heck of a swing. That was one of my favorite. As as a switch hitter, just just trying to watch every switch hitter, that guy had it down, man. That guy had it down. One of my favorite players to watch, I thought, and one of the more underrated players. He didn't get the accolades um like he deserved i thought but man he could play the outfield like you said from both sides of the plate was just uh damn he had a, a great swing he could run he could throw i mean he could do it all and just a quiet um nonchalant not rah rah never saw him get too high too low just that you know my type of player really was my type of player so i enjoyed playing against him watching him play and um I think if he would have piled on a few more years, he could have got to that Hall of Fame type status. Real, I, it, I don't think people realize how good Lance Berkman was. Um, you talk about just, it was more of the, the compiling side of things. I'm glad you, you use that word because that's that's the thing with Hall of Fame. You got to compile uh, on top of just being good for so long. I mean, this guy hit 293, 406, 537 across his career, 943 OPS. 366 home runs, 1,900 hits. Um, if he was able to play, you know, a few more years, yeah, I agree. This guy could have could have really been right there in the thick of things for Cooperstown. But yeah, you, you know, put another five years on him, he's got 450 home runs or more. He's got 2,400, 2,500 hits. I mean, the guy was a stud. It's 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 really crazy how hard it is to do it for so long. And we've talked about that. But what's crazy is this age 35 season with St. Louis. He went nuts. 
2011, 301, 412, 547 slash line. He finished seventh in MVP voting. So, uh, I mean, there's just so many players that are, and I love, that's why I love this jersey thing that we do because it's a reminder of how many Hall of Very Good players there are. Uh, and just how hard it is to get into Cooperstown because a guy like Lance Berkman, you'd think no brainer, uh, but it, it really is that hard. Uh, where would he rank amongst the switch hitters that you've seen? I, I, I assume behind Chipper Jones. Yeah. Chipper's number one, probably. Um, yeah. I caught the tail in Eddie Murray was pretty darn good <laughs> uh, as a switch hitter. Um Man, there's so few nowadays that are that are really good from both sides of the plate. And for me, his swing, you didn't lose anything on either side. He was that good. Yeah, that's the problem. If you lose something on one side, it's like it's almost not worth it. I look at Ozzy Albies. It's a classic one. He's got like 900 OPS from the right side and like 680 from the left side. And you hit from the left side two thirds of the time. I lose sleep over the fact that that guy switch hits. Uh, so it really is that hard <laughs> to, to to replicate it. But. That'll do it for, for this episode. We'll we'll continue to follow up through the offseason. Uh, the last thing I wanted to ask, though, is, is who have you had the chance to speak to? Obviously, you, you probably have not met Skip yet or or really many of the people within the, the front office yet. It's really just been Bruce. Pretty much. And Caroline O'Connor, who's now the, the team president, yeah. um, I've had some great conversations with her. And um, that's about it. You know, I, I met all the, the staff, um, like the business ops staff the other day, um, you know, when they kind of unveiled uh, my coming back. So that was fun. And um, I think in the next couple of weeks, I'll start uh, getting some meetings going with hopefully with Kim and, and Skip and just see where I can where I can help. That's why I'm here. Well, looking forward to following up with you and, and hearing about some of the plans that you have that you can speak about to to help out and some of the things that you'll be doing. I assume you'll be boots on the ground for spring training and and you know be involved in that way. And uh, hopefully we'll hear a little bit more about all the other things that you'll be doing. Again, congratulations. I know Marlins fans are ecstatic to have you back in the building and back involved with the team that you should always be involved with as long as you want to be. And looking forward to our next episode where we'll be talking more about your involvement with the Marlins and hopefully some interesting offseason moves as this team gears up for what we would say a hopefully successful 2023, which would be above 500 for the first time since 2009 in a full season. It's crazy, crazy, but um, it's hard to do. It's hard to do put a winner out there, but I think the Marlins are going to be hopefully training in the right direction. Uh, You'll be a big part of that and uh, looking forward to following up for our next episode. Have a great Thanksgiving, everybody.